My Teacher's Footsteps, Chapter 6, read by Nick Scott. Our pilgrims have crossed the Himalayas and arrived in Tibet on their way to Holy Kailash. Following the route taken by Ajahn Sumedho, but will the monks be allowed further? Chapter 6 Dealing with Disappointment In 1997, I drove a minibus, packed with monks and nuns, to collect Ajahn Sumedho from Heathrow Airport, on his return from Mount Kailash. I had to wait expectantly in the car park with the bus. Then, when Ajahn Sumedho clambered into the front seat beside me, I turned and, as casually as I could, asked, so how'd it go? I didn't get there, he answered grumpily. What? They threw me out. He didn't seem to want to say more, so I left him in peace for the journey back. I found out the rest by asking the lay people who went with him. At the government buildings in Purang, the town after the border, Andrew told me. There were these really young Chinese soldiers, or nineteen or twenty, just kids in green uniforms with hats too big for them. When I handed in the papers, they were uncertain about the monks. So I asked through the guide if a little bakshish might help, and they nodded. I put three hundred dollars in one of the passports. After that, they did all the paperwork, looked casually at our bags, and we were through. So we were really happy. But then, when we were in the jeeps, outside the hostel, maybe we'd already decided to go to Lake Manasarova and get out of Purang. It was really seedy town. Anyway, we were in the jeeps, when the kid soldiers came chasing after us, down the street. They were in a blind panic and screaming in Chinese at us. They'd got cold feet, or maybe found out something. The guide tried talking to them, but they insisted the monks had to go straight back. Everyone agreed we couldn't offer them more money, it just wouldn't work. But when I said we'd have to go back too, Michael wasn't having that. He said they paid to go to Kailash, and I had to take them as they weren't going on their own. David then got really annoyed with him. So they were both angry, while Anne and Alison were crying, and Sugato had his head down looking really gutted. But Ajahn Sumedho wasn't at all upset. He immediately saw it from the guard's point of view. They were petrified because they'd done something wrong. Maybe they'd get sent to a concentration camp. And he was so philosophical about it. If it wasn't meant to be, so be it. 
It was him who solved our argument by saying, I've been given all things to take to Mount Kailash so you can take them for me. I feel they should continue their journey. Lots of people have given them. Please take them on my behalf. So that's what we did. Anne recalled little of this detail, but then she also admitted she spent most of the time looking at the ground, quietly praying, and then crying. But she did remember Ajahn Samedo handing over the things he was carrying. He gave them to Andrew, and Andrew hugged him and burst into tears too. I was utterly shocked. I just couldn't believe it was happening and simply wanted to go back with him. I could see no reason to go on. We'd never discuss what to do if that happened. We'd all been so upbeat. How could it go wrong with Ajahn Samedo there? So we had no plan, and Andrew had to arrange things really quickly. He sent two of the Sherpas back with the monks, made sure they had all their equipment. But then he forgot food. They only had a packet of cornflakes to climb the Nara La Pass and get back to Yalbang Monastery. Ajahn Samedo doesn't like cornflakes. He told me later he felt he deserved that because he'd promised himself to ask for nothing on the pilgrimage, but then told Andrew he'd prefer not to have cornflakes for breakfast. It was late afternoon by the time the others left Purang for Lake Manasarova. Then they were delayed a couple more hours at a check post because the party's number now didn't tally with their papers. So when we finally did set off, it was getting dark, Anne told me. That was such a horrible drive in the desert, feeling so low and driving into the black, not knowing where we were going, no tarmac, just the desert. Lots of tracks and boulders in the headlights. Awful thing. Awful. Alison and Michael were also upset by that drive, Anne told me. And as to the previous disagreement about whether to go on without Ajahn Sumedho, Anne pointed out that Michael's position was understandable. He wasn't there for taking the monks to Mount Kailash. It was one of the big trips of his life and he wanted to experience everything, capture it and photograph it, have it. Nick Hodge wasn't on the trip because of Ajahn Samedo either, just Andrew, me and David. But Nick wasn't a forceful character, more laid back, bit of a jokey sort of chap, and I think Alison was just staying out of it. The reduced party arrived at Lake Manasarova, in the middle of the night, still upset. It was hellish journey and a mistake to do it at night, admitted Andrew. But I just wanted to get out of there. Michael thought we shouldn't have started, so when we got to the guest house, he got really angry with me. He wanted his stuff so he could sleep, but it was in the truck, which hadn't arrived. So he blamed me, which was justified but I was still upset about Ajahn Sumedho and thought Michael was just being selfish. And I must admit, I was also thinking his stuff was only in the truck because he'd given it to the porters to carry. 
So we had this raging argument, and I never argue. Then I even lifted my fist to thump him. I've never hit anyone in my life, not even as a kid. There I was on a spiritual pilgrimage, and I was just about to thump someone for the first time in my life. So I turned and walked away. Everything had been going so well until Ajahn Sumedho was sent back. Then it fell apart. The drive across the desert wasn't that pleasant for me either, 15 years later, even though the road was now tarmacked and we drove it in daylight. I was still nauseous, exhausted from the night spent retching and yearning to sleep but unable to. Every time I began to doze off, slumped against the window, I'd startle awake again as my body panicked at the lack of oxygen. I recall nothing else of that journey except foggily realising we must be at the Gola Pass and peering out to see, yes, there was Mount Kailash, the first view. This was the view that Lama Govinda described as one of the most inspiring views of the earth, a view, indeed, which makes the beholder wonder whether it is of this world or a dreamlike vision of the next. Although Kailash did look spectacular, standing alone amidst a wide, flat landscape, I hadn't got it in me to be transported, as Lama Govinda described. I just felt blank as the others took photos and Ajahn Amro gave us a little lecture on how Kailash and the smaller mountains round it had once been an island in the inland sea which was formed by India shunting into Asia. Govinda also claimed the pilgrim is so filled with peace that he is made immune to all personal concerns because, as in a dream, he feels one with his vision. My immunity was the inability to even formulate any concerns. Our original plan had been to drive west on a route just north of the Himalayan range which was supposed to have wonderful views and would take us through some remote and little visited villages and to then return on the main tarmac road to Kailash but our little minibus wouldn't have managed that, so we had to go both ways on the main road. Not that I cared now. For a Tibetan temple, the shrine had little on it. Only four or five seemingly random, smallish statues. Guru Rinpoche, a couple of bodhisattvas, and an even smaller Buddha Rupa. And with a framed tanker, a Tibetan religious painting used for teaching, propped up against the central bodhisattva. The shrine and the lower half of the statues were swaddled in layers of white silk carters, 
the ceremonial scarves that Tibetans offer to anything at all religious. The scarves were thickest across their laps, but also trailed to the ground in places and rose up and over the top of the painting's frame. The altar table set before the shrine had another random collection, this time of different sized brass dishes used for offering incense or holding butter lamps, one of which was alight. Our three monks bent down to kneel on the dusty floor, bowed three times to the shrine, then sat on their haunches in silence. Our first Buddhist shrine inside Tibet had a powerful sense of stillness that enclosed us, which I managed to savour, even in my dull state. A resonance, perhaps, of how important a place this had once been, and for how long. But there was also a poignancy. The random collection in front of us had been assembled from the remnants of the old temple, the body of which, surrounding us, had little of its original elaborate decoration. Gone were the floor-to-ceiling murals. Instead, the walls were newly plastered. The stone floor seemed recent too, and the wooden pillars and carved roof timbers had recently been repainted, while the traditional double entrance doors, which are always carved and elaborately painted with protective guardian spirits, were modern and blank. We'd been shown in by a man dressed partially as a monk, in a crimson robe and yellow shirt, but wearing worn blue jeans and sporting a moustache. He clicked at his rosary beads, while our monks bowed, and then, seeing they were staying a while, came forward, lit incense, which he placed in one of the brass receptacles, and shuffled quietly to the back, he was now sitting against the wall. Amidst the silence, I could hear the occasional distant rumble and clank of machinery, which came from the road we'd arrived on. It was so new we'd had to drive alongside the last part as it was having its final rolling. A lorry drove ahead of the roller, dribbling water over the surface, while Tibetan workers, with scarves covering their mouths, stood watching. The neat new road came to an abrupt halt before the monastery's old outer wall. The road working commenced again beyond the monastery compound, and some of the monastery itself was being rebuilt, a new small accommodation block, and a new entrance to this temple. The rest of the old buildings were still in ruins, mostly just weathered heaps of old bricks, through which had been marked the route of the new road. I asked Dorji, our guide, if there'd been a deal, paying to restore the monastery if the road could pass through. He said it was best I didn't ask. We'd been warned before we came how most of the monasteries had been deliberately destroyed in the Cultural Revolution. The large statues defaced and broken, anything of worth looted, and the monks forced to disrobe and return to lay life. Since then, the buildings had slowly crumbled away. 
but the actual experience was still both shocking and saddening. When our minibus had pulled up, Dorji had wanted to check in to the nearby guesthouse, but Ajahn Amro said that wouldn't do. They were monks, and first they had to pay respects to the Buddha. Dorji, surprised but also impressed, led us on the small Kora, the route of circumambulation around the monastery. The warm path headed up over a small bluff. The sharp wind blowing across the empty desert plain tore at the monks' robes, so they had to hold them tightly against their sides. Tattered prayer flags flapped vigorously from taut strings that led from the bluff to the ground below. We passed rocks assembled to create crude stupas, or long thick walls beside the path, most topped with twisted yakorns. I was struggling to keep up, so it was only when Dorje stopped at an outcrop of white chalk to explain how pilgrims collected this that I remembered Roger's long litany of praise about this place. Titapuri is very, very precious, beautiful. It has these little white balls, presumably the chalk I was now looking at. It has a kora for dying place, same like Kailash. It has sweet and sour earth, good for stomach disease. It has Sindura, the red powder used in Sanka painting, only found there. Many, many sacred things. Most Westerners don't go there, but the Indians know. Very powerful pilgrimage place. Not that I had the ability to discern the rest as we went round, but it was still impressive even to someone in my exhausted condition. The monastery's temple, which we'd entered, was beyond the bluff and faced out onto several large, dull, red, knobbly stalagmites, two or so metres high. I guess these were natural sandstone tours, but it was difficult to be certain because of the veneration they had received. Rocks were piled at their base, prayer flags strung from their tops, and they were coated with daubs of paint. Dorji did start to explain that they were natural Buddhas, but we were interrupted by a group of Tibetan pilgrims who were far more insistent than I was with their questions. They wanted to know about our monks. When Ajahn Amro emerged from the temple, they asked to be blessed by touching foreheads with him, which he did, and then asked to have their babies on the women's backs blessed too. The Kora was completed by passing back under the bluff, where two slight springs gave water. The first seepage was cold, the second oozed steaming hot water. A Coca-Cola can cut in half to make a cup lay beside the first. At the second, a Tibetan woman was collecting water and steam. For curing eyes, explained Dorji. In the guesthouse yard, 
we found our minibus parked beside a splendid Tibetan marquee with swirling brightly coloured designs sewn on the outside. Inside, rope beds were set either side of trestle tables. Presumably, it had been erected recently for a pilgrimage party to eat in. But once inside it, we decided we wanted to sleep there. It was both roomier and cleaner than the rooms offered in the guest house. Dorji, the driver, and the woman from the guest house were horrified. We would be too cold. There was no heating, no walls. But our down sleeping bags, too warm for much of the walk through Humla, would be excellent here. I felt so comfortable lying there, bathed in coloured light from the swirling patterns. I didn't want to move again. Beyond the new road was another hot spring, the steaming water dammed to create a shallow pool for bathing. When the road building ceased for the night, the others went out to stand barefoot in the warm water, the steam rising about them turning pink from the sunset's crimson glow. They said it was magical. But I lay on my rope bed exhausted and worried. How? If I had found that small Cora so hard, was I ever going to manage the three-day Cora round Mount Kailash? The lay people accompanying Ajahn Sumedho all managed the Mount Kailash pilgrimage, even Anne. She found the climb over Dolmala, the pass at the backside of Kailash, easier than the previous one over Narala, even though it was over a thousand metres high. It was not as steep or as long a climb, she told me, and she was well over the flu and digestion problems she'd suffered in Humla so somehow she'd managed it. The next day she was so tired that she could hardly walk in a straight line, but she'd been really happy as she thought the difficulties would now be over. But in that, she was very wrong. Andrew had been keen to get back to Humla as quickly as they could. They did the Kailash Kura in three days and drove the evening of the last day to Purang so they could sleep there and cross back into Nepal the next day. On the drive to the border they stopped to tour the remains of Kosak Monastery which had been destroyed in the Cultural Revolution. Those were the ruins I had noticed near Zia village. Andrew planned to stop for an hour, cross the border and have an early lunch before starting out to avoid carrying food while climbing. From the monastery they saw heavy cloud enveloping the pass and rain lower down. Michael wanted to get on, but Andrew felt they should give this time to honour what was the only monastic site they would see, particularly as it meant so much to David. When they got to the border, however, they could see the porters already climbing, along with the mule led by the cook, leaving them only with the little food they were carrying themselves. They could also see why. It was now snowing heavily higher up. 
they decided to climb straight away and eat the little they had en route. It was not long before they reached the snow. Michael has photos, Alison told me. In the first, we're standing in the snow and smiling. But the novelty soon passed as it steadily got worse. They toiled slowly upwards, the head Sherpa and Andrew taking turns to make the footsteps. Soon it was up to our thighs, Andrew told me, and really hard going. The porters had been forced to go ahead because all they had was flip-flops and no real clothing. Then, because Anne and Alison were struggling, we were dropping further and further behind, while all the time the snow was falling heavily. I had to keep stopping to see how they were. I thought we were going to have to stretch Alison down, because her heart was missing beats. Alison explained, It is something I get when I am exhausted and under stress, this terrible stabbing pain in my chest. I knew if I could just stop for a rest and, and eat something, it would go. But we couldn't do either. All we could eat were a few culture patties near the start. Anne gave me painkillers and I just kept going. But I was really slow and holding everyone back. The snow was getting so thick we couldn't see anything. Anne was also finding it difficult. My eyelashes kept freezing together. I was really tired and getting so hungry. After the tabati each, all we had were two tiny boxes of sun-made raisins. We'd stop every half hour and each get one raisin. And we were still so far from the top. I thought I was going to die. Alison felt her mortality too. It felt so close. I remember saying to myself my final goodbyes and thinking, OK, there are worse places to die. I've been on pilgrimage. I was in the mountains. I've achieved something. Everything was down to the absolute bare bones. Life and death, left foot, right foot, pain, exhaustion, the deep snow, and just waiting to see what's going to happen. But also somehow I felt so close to the spiritual. When it began to get dark, Andrew told them to put on their head torches. But none of them worked. It was so cold, Anne told me. So there was only Michael's hand torch flicking back and forth to show us where to go. The snow falling and us struggling up through the deep snow, with David doing his mantra behind me. And somehow we just kept going, keeping going, keeping going. I don't know how we did it. As they neared the top, a young Sherpa appeared ahead. He'd come back to help them. He'd set off with the Nepalese policeman, who then tried to stop him going back when the two of them reached the top, insisting it was pointless and that they should save themselves. It was good Terin came back, Andrew told me. 
We needed him to look after the others. We had to keep shaking them awake when we stopped. Without that, we would have died of hypothermia. It was the worst experience I've had in the mountains in 30 years of climbing. By the time we reached the top, we'd been going for over 10 hours, and it must have been near midnight. But we thought at least we were nearly there. The campsite we'd used five days before was just below with a hut the porters slept in, which we could use, and there'd be hot food. But then, when we got there, it was just walls with the inside filled with snow. The rest had been dismantled by the locals for the winter. Anne remembers standing in deep snow, calling, and there being dead silence except for the wind. There was nothing we could do but go on. Andrew said we'd not survive the night if we dug a snow hole, as it was so cold. We'd already found our mule lying dead in the snow at the top, where the pulses had had to leave it. There was no path, and we had no idea which was the right way. It was then that I thought we were really finished. But the head Sherpa, Rikshin, lived in that valley, and he knew by looking at some big boulders which way to go. So we started down following him. If he hadn't been there, we would have all died. He was in front with the torch going down and down on these steep, icy slopes. Eventually we found our cook sitting crumpled on a rock in the snow. We thought he was dead. We had to shake him away. He was waiting there for us. He couldn't speak, he was so hypothermic. His torch had failed and he had no idea where he was. He would have died for sure. Amazing we found him. By that time we'd found the pass, so we got him up and walked down with him, and then we came below the snow line and it was raining. That must have been another two hours. When we arrived at the police checkpoint, I can't tell you what it was like to have a cup of tea by a fire. We were so lucky to make it, and just with the mule dying. But you know, I don't think Ajahn Sumedha would have survived. Andrew felt the same. Ajahn Sumedha was over 60. Afterwards I kept thinking how lucky it was he wasn't with us, and how maybe that was why. In Kathmandu, Roger had spoken about the Kailash pilgrimage as a place for facing your karmic load, the accumulated bad credits from previous lives. And he'd given examples of hellish things he and others had endured. But then the practical side of him had also predicted that some of us would suffer, as I did, simply because of the altitude. That's why you go to Tatapuri, 
The day before you enter Tibet, you have the 800 meter rise over the pass. Then you have another 800 meter rise to Lake Manasarova. The body may strike. Safe is four to 500 meters at high altitude. So two is double risky. Best you go back down to Tartapuri to sleep, then down more to Toling to let the body recover. Maybe our suffering was karmic, who knows? But for myself and Apamadu, who now had a continuous migraine and was feeling increasingly nauseous, it definitely felt like our bodies had struck. He, like me, didn't want to make anything of it, so as not to put the others out. But whenever he spoke, the difficulty he had simply engaging was obvious. So I hoped it would be better for both of us down at Toling. Although I didn't sleep that night in the marquee, I did rest. I was getting used to the body's panic at the lack of oxygen as my breath slowed, but it still pulled me back into wakefulness each time. So I'd lie there listening to the struggled breathing of my companions while trying to be mindful and accepting. In the night's middle hours, some energy came and I stole out quietly into the blistering cold night to walk, clothed but also wrapped in my sleeping bag, beside the small river. This was the Sutledge, I'd realise. It sourced the two lakes at the base of Mount Kailash and its destination the Punjab in northern India. It was flowing into a small gorge of which the bluff at the monastery was the start. The night was still and silent, the stars painfully sharp despite the half-moon. If we had had land cruisers, as we'd expected, the next day would have been spent continuing down the Sutlej Valley passing occasional small communities which use the river water to eke out a living at this altitude, visiting the Bon Monastery of Gurugyam, an ancient troglodyte city, and other remains of the western kingdoms of Tibet. But the new tarmac stopped at Titapuri, and our minibus was no vehicle for a day on a dirt road. And so instead we had to return and head west on western Tibet's only tarmac road, which goes all the way to Kashgar in Inner Mongolia, crossing several passes. There is a turn off it onto a short tarmac road that drops back into the Sutlej Valley. Initially the landscape was the same wide desert plain, with mountains in the distance. We passed a nowhere Tibetan town called Monza, there because of a big coal mine nearby. But after that the views became steadily more spectacular. The soft sediments of the inner sea, formed from the eroding Himalayas, have been cut into by the rivers flowing out through the Himalayan wall. The result looks incredibly complicated and is on an immense scale. Discrete layers, each one a sharply edged step, run up the side of gorges, cliffs, promontories and isolated hills, 
Everything is made of these stepped layers. And they are such incredible colours. Every hue of brown, from deep mauve through reds to bright yellow. Ajahn Amro reckoned it the most amazing landscape he'd ever seen. Rory, sitting next to me, was also deeply moved. Though being Rory, he only mumbled, Yes, it is. Both of them took innumerable photos all day long. Everyone looked out of the windows utterly transfixed, except for me. I had enough vitality to appreciate how unusual it was, but not enough to feel much response. I dully tried to justify this obvious lack to myself. It's desert with none of the beauty provided by life. That's what I'm moved by. And because it's alpine desert, there's not even standing cacti. There was some truth in the justifications. I do get bored easily in cave tours and such, but really it was the mind state viewing it which was the problem. That same lethargic state also couldn't recognise quite how bad I was. By now, Dorji was showing increasing respect to the monks. In Purang, I'd had to insist that Ajahn Amro had the best seat by the driver. Dorji had responded then as he might with any group, a shrug that acknowledged we were paying. But things changed once they had taken off their jackets and hats and he could see they were monks. Now he started to question Ajahn Amro. You can be a monk for a short time in Thailand? Most men do it. Parents of girls expect any husband to have been a monk. They think it makes them responsible. And the government gives all civil servants three months off to be a monk. What, the government helps people to be monks? Sure. They know it brings morality into society. Dorji told us that he'd thought of becoming a monk. He'd escaped from Tibet in his teens and been educated in Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama was based. That's where he'd learnt his English and why he spoke with the street-wise mid-Atlantic drawl he'd learnt from the foreigners there. I chipped in that Ajahn Amaro knew the Dalai Lama. Really? I've met him many times, Ajahn Amro added, at conferences and meetings. He recognises me. He held my nose once and gave me a big hug. Dorji told us how the Chinese put him in a re-education camp for six months when he returned. Yeah, that was hard. Then I got this job because I speak English, but I have to be real careful. He certainly was careful. At each check post, he'd warn us to put our cameras away and do nothing to upset the guards. Then he was always respectful talking to the Chinese police. In Purang, he told us to stay indoors. Later that afternoon, our little minibus started the descent back into the Sutlej Valley, winding down through the layered cliffs 
promontories and gorges, to where the river, having grown substantially, now wound its way across a wide riverbed. Beyond it, on a slight cliff, was a small town amidst poplar trees, looking utterly incongruous in this empty desert landscape. I wondered why it was there. The only signs of agriculture we passed were several large polytunnels, just before we crossed a set of long bridges over what was still a comparatively small river for the size of the riverbed. Then we drove up and into the town, pulling up outside a Tibetan hostel, a two-storey building painted in gaudy Tibetan colours. Inside, before setting off to the military compound to get our permits, Dorji gave us another lecture on being careful and not taking photos. Once he'd gone, I went out to see if I could resolve the conundrum of why this town might be here. The hostel faced an off-white wall some ten feet high, which ran all the way to the town's main street, which was like the one in Purang. One side was lined with small shops in concrete blocks, a dozen or so to each block, all of them Chinese. The other side had another standard Chinese hotel, just like the one in Purang, and government buildings, a big police station and an even bigger Chinese military barracks. The workers were all Tibetans, pulling carts that trundled by, carrying spades or brooms, unloading a lorry and wearing clothes which were dirty and worn. All had some variety of hat on to shade the sun. Cowboy hat, peaked cap, floppy sun hat, woven sombrero. And they often also had a scarf over their mouths against the dust. The few Chinese on the street wore neat uniforms or smart western clothes. The few vehicles were either military green or tractors. This town, I realised, was here because of the border with India, just as Purang was. The border is still in dispute, so the Chinese are here in force. And that was why Dorji was particularly nervous. At one end of the street was a large ancient stupa, painted Tibetan maroon and white. It stood next to the cliff edge, and was being circled by several Tibetans. I'd seen Tibetans doing this often in India, whirling handheld prayer wheels, most of the women in their traditional colourful clothes. But here, inside Tibet, no one had a prayer wheel, and they were all in modern dress. A chap in a warm black suit was on his mobile phone. A teenage girl in jeans and pink sweater was learning her Chinese vocabulary from a book, repeating the words over and over as she went round. And a mother holding a two-year-old was going slowly along the line of big copper prayer wheels facing onto the stupa, encouraging the little child to turn each one. Off to one side, a group of young Chinese soldiers stood watching, taking photos of the scene and commenting to each other. Then they took photos of me as I joined the circling Tibetans. Beside the stupa was a pristine new municipal park, laid out in orderly squares with paths, flower beds and lighting, 
and at one side, right beside the stupa, two marquees admitted Chinese pop songs. To the shrill sound of these, I turned round the stupa, now with a view of the Chinese town, now the new park, then looking out across the empty Sutlej Valley to a wide and incredible landscape, the narrow river flowing through its much wider riverbed with the cliffs of layered sediment in the distance. Here it was all the colour of old bone. Then, as I came round further, there, beyond, were the white Himalayan peaks. And so back to the mundane, town, park, soldiers, shrill pop songs. Then out again into the emptiness. In the slightly disconnected state I was in, it all ran into each other as I trudged slowly round and round much as the Tibetan Buddhist teachings have it, samsara, nirvana, all the same. Towards evening, after a much-needed rest, we got to see what lay beyond the old wall facing our guest house. After two visits to the military office in town, Dorji had the necessary permits. Beyond the wall was an ancient Buddhist monastery of single-storey buildings, the one still in use coloured the off-white and dull red of the stupa, but in differing combinations. Much of the site was just ruins, buildings and stupas that had crumbled and were now returning to the earth from which they had been made. We followed the janitor as Dorji explained that this was the famous Toling Monastery, and with a jolt I came out of my fog with a memory. Of course, this was one of the two sites Stephen Batchelor had been so keen to see. Buddhism was able to survive in Gorje, while being repressed in the rest of Tibet because the place was so remote, Stephen had told us. Its capital city, Toleng, being adjacent to India, then became one of the principal places for Buddhism's revival in the 11th century. It was where Atisha first came to Tibet, and his so important to the Tibetans, particularly the Gulukpa, the tradition I was trained in. Many Tibetans would tell me the story of how the king of Gurje, Yashio, gave up his life to bring Atisha to Tibet. Although unlikely to be true, it's one of those stories indicating how important an event this was. Supposedly the king was captured and ransomed for his weight in gold, but told his people to use the money instead to invite and bring Atisha. But Gorgi must have been important, and wealthy, to sponsor someone like Atisha, the abbot of the famous Bikram Shiva monastery in Bengal. That was during the Mughal invasions of India, which led to the destructions of the monasteries there, so sponsoring Atisha would have been like sponsoring refugees in Germany wanting to flee Berlin, Jewish intellectuals and so on, invited by Harvard or Yale to America. Remembering that made me reassess what I was now looking at. Yes, this would have been a large and important monastery. Its style seemed much simpler than the famous multi-storied Tibetan monasteries I'd seen photos of. But then it would be, if it had been at the height of its importance much earlier. What I couldn't comprehend, however, was how a wealthy city could have been here to support it. 
Today there was very little to the rest of the small town, and beyond was high-altitude desert. We stopped in front of the largest temple building. All of its walls washed the dull maroon red with which the Tibetans paint anything religious. As an old monk unlocked the large wooden doors, Dorji warned us we mustn't take photos. Some guys from Kathmandu used photos to find buyers, then came back and stole the statues. Then we toured the gloomy interior, following Dorje, the Tibetan monk, and Ajanamro, who had the most powerful torch. The old monk would point out a figure amidst the intricate murals on the walls, saying the name in Tibetan, and then, as the circle of light from Ajahn's torch settled on it, Ajahn or Dorji would give us the Sanskrit name. I was at the back, so saw each image after they had moved on, by the feeble light of the torch on my mobile phone. The reduced vision suited my state, and anyway, I find religious symbolism, like these deities and bodhisattvas, a struggle to appreciate, even when I'm bright. What I did enjoy was wandering round the rest of the tolling site with Damarako. We explored old buildings, remains of buildings and stubs of stupas. Then, drawn by the sound of loud chanting, we passed through a door to find seven old Tibetan women sitting on chairs round a giant brass prayer wheel, which they turned as they chanted, the rumbling prayer wheel ringing a bell once every turn. When they saw us, they stopped, calling out in delight while the prayer wheel rumbled to a halt. The voice of a monk, which they had been following, carried on, emanating from an old cassette recorder. But they wanted blessings. Damaraku had to touch heads with each. As we moved on, we heard them and the prayer wheel start up again, rejoining and drowning out the monk. I returned alone to the big stupa beside the town. By then it was early evening, the low sun illuminating the scene. A group of lads wearing baseball caps now sauntered around it, on the dusty warm path, along with a middle-aged man and several older people. As I joined them, two teenage girls arrived, wearing tight jeans, high heels and lots of makeup. The Chinese pop music seemed louder now and was accompanied by the murmur of voices. The marquees, I realised as I passed, contained a bar serving the Chinese. Some of them were gathered outside, many in uniform. With the bar open, the stupa didn't have the same atmosphere. So I only circled the obligatory three times and then followed the cliff's edge, heading west looking out at the wide valley with the sun starting to set. I was following a well-worn path which passed rows of crumbling small stupas, now little more than misshapen piles of earth. 
at the cliff's far end, where it swung back on itself to create a peninsula, there were complete stupas with lines of multicoloured prayer flags radiating from the largest out to the top of the smaller ones, or to wooden poles, all of which radiated further lines of prayer flags. It looked like a carnival site. Inside, with the prayer flags flapping above and around me, I could see paths delineated with small stones that meandered everywhere beneath the flags and around the poles and stupas, criss-crossing each other and passing innumerable small rock piles, often adorned with yakhorns. Everything here was made so crudely. Clay, rough wood, rock, animal horn, a simple people's expression of piety. Like sights I knew from the west of Ireland. It was organic, feminine, and in such contrast to the brutal Chinese communist town. The faded colours of the small tattered flags, there must have been a thousand of them flapping above and around me, were a statement against the greyness, the greyness of the desert, the greyness of the communist regime. Despite my state, or maybe because of it, with the sky above me now turning crimson, I was transfixed. Here was the heartfelt response I was not capable of when travelling in the minibus. I was inside a coloured field kaleidoscope of religious piety. It was one of those moments when the veil is parted. The following morning, we set out early to visit the citadel of Saparang, which Dorji explained had replaced Tolin as the capital of the small kingdom known as Gorje. It was along the Sutlej Valley, but further back from the river on a small tributary, and carved out of a promontory in the stepped, light, ochre-grey valley sides. From a distance, the promontory looked different to the rest of the towering cliffs, but not in colour, only in its crenulated nature. As we got closer, the crenulations resolved into the remnants of a thousand houses, caves and stupas, crowded onto its steep sides. At a modern entrance gate, Dorje presented our permits, and we climbed worn steps, carved from the same ochre-grey earth used to make everything else. We passed two intact temples painted deep maroon red. The only other building not in ruins was another square maroon-coloured box at the distant top, which Dorji told us was the king's palace. We climbed upwards, between the remains of earth walls, towards the palace. Or I should say, the rest of the party did, as I was soon left behind. I could manage only a few steps before having to stop, breathless, to gaze at yet another light ochre-grey earth pile in front of me, the remains of some wall or stupa. So my experience of Saparang was different from that of my companions. I heard none of Dorje's explanation, 
and didn't see into any of the buildings he showed the others. All I saw were the steps ahead, ascending at first between house walls, then through a tunnel carved upwards through the soft rock, and then past fortifications. I climbed the whole way, willing myself on, but was still passed by the others coming down. At the top, I slumped against the wall for the third time and remained there. I was engulfed in despair. How was I ever going to manage the core around Mount Kailash? I'd now had two days to recover and we'd descended to the Gorge Kingdom. What would I be like circling Kailash starting a thousand metres higher? Then the pass, Dolmalar, was 5,700 metres. 18,700 feet. Surely I was never going to manage that. As I sat there forlornly gazing out over the view, I also felt the poignancy of this citadel, now a crumbling pile of earth, which had once provided a fortified home for several thousand souls. Kings, courtiers, peasants, merchants, soldiers, all beavering away, taking their lives so seriously. What was the point when it crumbles away to this? Just a giant pile of earth amidst a dry and bleak landscape. At one of my slump stops on the way up, I found I was sitting on a cache of tsar-tsar, tiny clay offerings less than the size of a thumbnail, made with a mould. They all represented the same figure and had emerged from the base of what must have been a vault of space with a religious image. But now it was all just so much crumbling earth, coloured the same light ochre grey. As I recovered from the climb and my mind slowly brightened, I started to reappraise my situation. From this vantage point, I could see both up and down the wide Sutlich Valley, and the view was stunning. Things weren't so bad. I just had to accept I couldn't keep up with the others. If instead I simply stayed within what I could manage, I might enjoy things. Maybe I could even do Mount Kailash that way. At least I could try, and not worry about the Dolmalor Pass until I got there. I got to pondering again about how such a large community could have come to live here, where so few people live now. In the whole wide valley, I could see just one farm way off, down by the Sutledge, with a few poplars standing about a single small dwelling. This valley was so inhospitable to life, dry most of the year, freezing for half of it, so that Rory could find only a few plant species, a grass, a couple of small spiny shrubs and a little clematis-like climber. The shrubs were only now coming into leaf, even though it was the first day of June. That made the growing season, where there was water, less than three months long. How could such a place justify a city? In the minibus, Dorje had mentioned that the road went on to a border post on a high pass, 
which was closed now, except for local trade. Recalling that, I realised that Gorget was on a trade route from India that came up the Sutlej Valley and then over the Himalayas, just as we had come up the Kanali Valley from Nepal and over a pass where the river passed through a gorge. The existence of Toling and later Tasparang must have been due solely to trade. From here the route could have crossed the high Tibetan desert plateau to Kashgar on the Silk Route, where a right turn led to China and left to Europe. And this would be the most direct route from the plains of India. I have since read reports of caravans of hundreds of merchants transporting silk and pottery and how the whole citadel was fed with fresh food grown two weeks' journey away. Tasparang had been an ethnically diverse merchant city, the important resting place between the crossing of the Himalayan Wall and the desert. This was why it was the first place in Tibet that any European is known to have visited. The Portuguese Jesuit Father Antonio de Andrande came here from Goa as a missionary in 1624, drawn to Tibet by reports of a Christian people on the other side of the Himalayas. The Portuguese believed then in the myth of the kingdom of Prester John and the lost Christians somewhere beyond the Muslim world. When Andrande got to Saparang, he was convinced he'd found them. The monasticism he met was, he reported, a degenerate form of Christianity mixed with pagan beliefs, but still retaining a trinity at its core. Father Andrande's visit to Tasparang was given a whole chapter in a book Stephen had recommended. I'd brought it with us, but we'd left it in Kathmandu with that part unread. It was the account of another Jesuit father's mission to Tibet, 100 years later. All Tibetan texts say it was Andrande's Christian mission that led to the fall of Tasparang, that the Ladakhi state to the west attacked them because of it. But I suspect that's just ancient spin put on the destruction by Buddhist monks. Andrande had left by then, leaving a small Christian flock and it seems more likely that these mountain states were regularly at war at that time, hence the construction of a fortified citadel to replace Toling to protect their trade route wealth. But whatever the cause, the means is not in doubt. Unable to take the citadel, the Ladakhis brought in Mongol mercenaries who built a massive siege tower. The king, courtiers and generals surrendered to save the rest of the population and were immediately beheaded in full view of the town above. After that, Sasparang was abandoned and never lived in again. The stone base of the siege tower is still there, the dressed granite stone standing out amidst all that sediment. Not that I saw it myself. I didn't manage the temples either on the way back, nor their exquisite murals, which Stephen Batchelor had most wanted to see. I did look in, but decided to keep to my new resolve, of only doing as much as I could manage. 
I'd also had enough sadness for that day and couldn't cope with the destruction caused by the Cultural Revolution. One glance in at the battered statues and the attempted repairs with crude daubs of clay was enough. Instead, I just wandered down to our minibus and waited for the others to finish. That afternoon we saw more destruction wrecked by the Cultural Revolution. Back at Tolling, after lunch, eaten under a few poplars beside the Sutlej River, we were shown round a complex of old buildings in the monastery behind the Red Temple. With the janitor leading and Dorje translating, we were taken in turn to a series of doors, each of them leading off the same central space. Each door, when unlocked by the janitor, revealed a shrine to a different bodhisattva. We could tell which one only by reading the worn sign the janitor handed Dorje with the name in Tibetan, Chinese and English. On each room's back wall there was a raised outline, the aura that had originally surrounded the figure. But of the statue, only a few pieces found during the restoration lay on the floor, an arm and a leg, or an arm and part of the head. One room just had the torso split open with its straw stuffing spewed on the floor. Another just the base with a seated lion either side. Before each set of remnants was a small pile of dusty banknote offerings. That evening the communist state had a go at us too. We were out on the cliff, just Damaraco, Apamado and myself. I'd shown them the big stupa and we were walking to the peninsula of fluttering prayer flags when three people came hurrying from behind. In the lead was an attractive young Chinese woman with straight black hair incongruously dressed in a tight black dress with white swirls, so short you could see most of her black fishnet tights, glittering shoes with high heels and with a purse the shape of a heart dangling from her wrist. She appeared to have come from a nightclub. Trailing behind her was a middle-aged Tibetan in a rumpled suit and a uniformed policeman, also Tibetan. It was the young Chinese woman who spoke. Excuse me, I am police, but please excuse, do not have identity card. We nodded. I could see the problem. Where would she have put it? We wish to see your paper and passports. They're in the hotel. You must take us there. So we all walked back via the stupa, with the two Tibetans, both probably local police, trailing behind us. The policewoman apologised twice more for not having her identity card, but I suspect it was really embarrassment at the way she was dressed. She wobbled on her high heels as we crossed the rough ground and was looking increasingly cold, although still trying to remain stern-looking. At the hostel, Dolge produced our papers and sent everyone for their passports, indicating with his hand as we returned that we should sit down and keep quiet. The policewoman's respectful tone had now gone, Instead, she barked at Dorje in harsh Chinese, staring hard at each of the papers he produced. 
His replies seemed confident, though. He was used to this, and knew everything was in order. Eventually she asked for our passports, which Dorji had collected from us, again indicating we should sit quietly as she carefully examined them. She asked us occasional questions to test they were our passports. Then she nodded and gave them back. Next it was the turn of the hostel's large guest register. There she immediately spotted something wrong. Her Chinese, directed at the female Tibetan owner, now came out like bullets. She stabbed at the register, shouting at the woman. I started to say how kind they'd been, but Dorje immediately shut me up, whispering, It's their problem, not us. Stay out. But it was so painful to watch. The shouted, high-pitched questions were shrieked out one after the other. In reply to each, the Tibetan owner just looked lost, shaking her bowed head, saying nothing, while starting to cry. An older Tibetan man in the background, maybe her husband, was visibly in shock. But Dorji and the two Tibetan policemen looked on impassively. Eventually the young policewoman turned and spoke to Dorji, who told us we could go back to our rooms. Everything was in order. But the inquisition of the hostel owner continued without us. As we left, Dorji handed out our passport, saying quietly, Not our problem. Police want to find something wrong. An hour later, when Damaraco went out to get fresh air, the hostel owner and husband were still being interrogated, but now in their office. He said the Tibetan woman was sobbing audibly. We were in shock for the rest of that evening. We'd seen the brutal reality of occupation. It reminded me of the way the whites treated the blacks in South Africa during apartheid and the Israelis, the Palestinians. This young woman, dressed so prettily for her night out, had turned into a she-devil. But it wasn't her fault. It's the inevitable consequence of trying to rule a country where you are a much-resented minority. You have to act tough because of the fear. The fear is everywhere, in the oppressors as well as the oppressed. It was that same fear that Ajahn Samedo had spotted in the soldiers who'd thrown him out of Tibet. Blind panic that they'd done something wrong. The Nepalese police on the other side of the border weren't like that. Anne said they were really kind when the lay party reached their hut in the middle of the night after crossing the pass in the snow. They gave us hot tea and food, and then when our tent collapsed with the weight of the snow, they made space for us in the floor. Crossing the pass was not the end of the lay party's difficulties, however. The following day it was the meltwater plus the rain falling at lower altitudes. All that water was now rushing down the valley, overflowing the riverbed and turning every small tributary into a roaring torrent making each one dangerous to cross. It had also caused landslides that had swept away the path. 
Anne told me that Andrew was now pretty sick. He had dysentery when we crossed the pass, but just kept pushing himself. The next day he really struggled, and that night I remember plying him with pills and him having really high fevers. He was completely drenched in sweat. I had to give him my sleeping bag and tried to treat him in the night. Everything was wet in the tent, everything. He was really miserable. I was sharing my tent with him by then. He'd taken me under his wing when we got to Tibet. He said it would be warmer, but he was also trying to keep an eye on me. But for the last two days, it was him who was worse. He spent so much energy on that pass. The next day was the rockfall, another near-death experience. For me, anyway. We got to a place where the path was washed away. The track had gone and there was just this gap and a slight path across with a precipice down to the river roaring beneath. Boulders were coming down, bouncing and falling into the river. We had to run across and try to avoid the boulders. There were spaces, ten seconds between the boulders. If one hit you, that would have been it. Michael had been walking ahead and came back and said the path was closed and we'd have to find another way. And Andrew replied, There isn't another way, Michael. We'll just have to run across. So there was this argument. Michael wouldn't have it. This was absolutely insane, madness, and he was trying to recruit people to do his thing. That was to climb down to the river and wade through the water. The Sherpas thought that was a ludicrous idea. The river was in spades and they obviously knew more about it than him. Andrew was really tired so he just ran across and was shouting back, Run, run! And so everyone did, including Alison. And I ended up left with Michael. He was trying to stop me, saying, you have to come with me. Don't, for God's sake, go across there. And I just kind of froze. All these great boulders coming down. What to do? I made a hesitant start and a boulder came crashing down and Michael shouted at me to stop. So I stopped. And then I froze completely. But right where the boulders were. Taring, the young guide, ran back, took my pack, took my hand and ran with me. And Michael? He came when there wasn't anyone left. I think he was just really scared and couldn't admit it. But I was really angry with him. I could have died. The next day we went down to Yalbangompa. We stayed there two nights, I think to dry out our stuff. That first night, Alice and Michael and Nick Hodge were out around the fire drying things with the Sherpas. But me, Andrew and David spent the evening in with the monks, recounting the trip. I remember how keen Ajahn Samedo was to know about the Kora and how we were. Sugato was really quiet, which was unlike him. I think he found it hard hearing what he'd missed. Really hard. But Nick, the monks, had it much better than us. They'd been given a room upstairs in the monastery's new temple, which had the only good roof. 
Heavy rain like that was really unusual in the valley, and all the old houses with the flat roofs had problems. Even Rinpoche's house. But Ajahn Samedo said they'd been really dry in their room, just sitting there meditating and looking out at the rain. Before that, they'd spent a lot of time talking to Rinpoche and going for walks. He'd really enjoyed his stay. With the reuniting of the party, all the difficulty and disharmony ended. The rain had stopped and the skies cleared, so that by their arrival at the monastery there was not a cloud to be seen. Their final walk together down to Simicot was beautiful. The valley was full of sunlight, glistening off the washed vegetation. They were walking mostly downhill, as well as at a lower altitude where everything was easier, so they could just relax and enjoy it all. It was like walking through the Garden of Eden, Anne told me. Lush rivers, rainbows, waterfalls, and wonderful to be walking with Ajahn Samedo again. I remember lots of laughter. It felt like nothing was a big deal. Everyone was friends again. And Michael and Andrew were fine. As if Ajahn Samedo had been the glue holding it all together. There was no problem with their flight out of Simicot either. But at Kathmandu the reservations for their flight home had been cancelled. There had been no time in the two days of panic before they set off, so Andrew had asked the local agency to confirm them. But they'd forgotten. Andrew, Nick Hodge, Alison and Michael had to pay for new flights the next day with another airline. But the monks, Anne and David, were in no hurry and could wait. That was a really lovely time, Anne told me. We stayed in Copan Monastery again. The Rinpoche there was really kind. We all really enjoyed it. It was like paradise after what us lay people had gone through. You know, I don't think Ajahn Samedo was meant to go to Kailash. I later found out why Ajahn Samedo had been so grumpy when I collected him at the airport. It wasn't disappointment about not getting to Kailash. Rather, it was because so many people had been wishing him well, and now with his return, he had to disappoint them all, starting with all the monks and nuns who'd just met him off the flight. Maybe this was why he announced he wouldn't return to Tibet until the Chinese allowed the Dalai Lama in. <laughs> 